these are the kings of Israel and Judah. And so I just want to give you um, just an understanding, a picture here of when Hosea was prophesying. So if you scroll down, Dave, uh, here's David, Saul um, established first king in 1025 BC. Then there was a civil war after Solomon, kings of Judah and kings of Israel. Uh, there were prophets to, to the south. Isaiah was one. There were prophets, Isaiah, who prophesied uh, during the time of... Go down a little bit more. Okay, why don't you stay there. He started, Isaiah started here at the time of, of um, Uzziah, but here... Up here, this is when Elijah started prophesying. Elisha was prophesying right through here. Amos, who we're going to get to next, was here. Scroll down a little bit more. And so Jeroboam II, this whole time here is when Hosea was prophesying. And, and again, to me, one of the most extraordinary things about the prophets and about what we learn from them is God sent the heavyweights to those tribes in northern Israel even though they would never repent. Amazing. Such a demonstration of the love and commitment to, uh, of the Lord. He, you know, God, he, he, he had a, a covenant with Israel. It, it, it originated with Abraham. It was affirmed to Isaac. It was affirmed to Jacob. It was affirmed to Moses. And it was not a contract. A contract is two-way. A covenant, God's covenant was one way. And so because it was a one-way covenant, it was based completely on grace. When I say it was one way, it was completely on grace. It really... As strange as it seems, it didn't, the covenant was not based on the behavior of Israel. It was just based purely on the promise of God. Because it was a unilateral covenant, he didn't stop sending his, his prophets uh, to, to warn Israel. And up until the very end, Hosea is the exact same Hebrew name as Hosea. The translators put an H in there, the last king of, of Israel, just so we would distinguish and we wouldn't get them uh, mixed up. But this is when he was prophesying. Again, it was a very prosperous time, Jeroboam II. Jeroboam uh, was a descendant of the first king of the northern tribes of Israel. And as we saw last week, amazingly, it says in, in, in verse 1, or verse 2 rather, of chapter 1, it says, when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, he said, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. <laughs> That's the first words. Can you imagine the first words, audible words? This, this guy gets from God. It's like, what kind, of, what kind of God is this? I mean, he's telling me to go take a prostitute. First words. 
when he began to speak uh, to Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take yourself a wife of harlotry. So he does that. He obeys the Lord. He has two sons and a daughter. And in, so we're going to start in, in chapter 3 this evening. And it says there in chapter 3, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. So what had happened? She, Gomer, had left him and gone back to her trade. You know, one of the things that we really emphasize with people who are uh, young men and, and, and women who start getting interested in each other, you really need to deal with sin issues in your life before getting married, not after. She went into this marriage with a major sin issue and may have lasted for a while, but she actually at this point has gone back into her trade. Now, I'll repeat again the same thing that I talked about last week. Lamentably, as you look through commentators on this, many commentators, especially the old school guys, are of the opinion that at the time Hosea initially took Gomer as a wife, she was not a prostitute, but she came in after. I had a seminary professor say the exact same thing he was teaching. He goes, there's just no way it is contrary to the nature of God that God would ever ask anyone to do such a thing. Two problems with that. One, it goes against the literal meaning of the words in chapter one. Always a big problem. But number two, it misses the entire point of the book. The entire point of the book is that this is a foreshadowing of Christ and that he did the same thing with you, he did the same thing with me. He said, you go and save Steve Cole. He is a harlot. He is, he, 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 that's what he is doing. That's what Jesus went to the cross. We were enemies of him. And, and it, the whole point of the book is that is that the Lord is, is trying to demonstrate the love of God to his people. Now, it's really, really hard for us. You know, the Bible is a holy book. It's the word of God. It, I, and, and we believe it's all God-breathed, as, it's, as it says in Timothy. Uh, there are not errors in the, in, in the Bible. In the original manuscript, says they were given to his people but yet it falls short in, 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 the, in the sense that you can't put the love of God and describe it with words. And, and, and so the Lord, you know, the prophets and the Lord do their best to describe the love of God with words. But from time to time, but words are inadequate. So for t from time to time, the Lord gives us an actual picture of his love, which begins to give us a glimpse and just to the enormity of how much, so how profound his love is for us and how much more his love is for us than, than we could ever even imagine. And this is one of these pictures. 
God loved you even as you were a harlot. Now, by that word harlot, I, I don't mean that, you know, at, at some point in your life you were out on the streets. Maybe that is the, the, the case um, with, with some of you. But, but um, the meaning of that word as throughout this book just harlotry, idolatry, same thing. Anytime you are idolizing or worshiping something, your career, your money, your, uh, your uh, whatever, sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever, and you're putting it before God, the Bible calls that harlotry, idolatry. And while you were yet an harlot, as shocking as this may sound to our ears, God sent Jesus to the cross for you. What a demonstration. Of course, there is an even better demonstration of the love of God towards you, and that is the cross, right? The bloody, ugly cross shows us how ugly our sin really is. Man, we love to think of ourselves as just prime and proper and good people. Let's take one look at the cross and you'll get a picture of how ugly your sin is. Uh, and, 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 and yet Jesus, he makes us perfect and blameless before him, even as we, uh, we, we invite him into our life, and he, he takes over. And the Bible says that we're perfect and blameless before him in love, Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. So he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover. Sorry, I will eventually get off this first verse, but notice here, love is not an emotion here. So going and getting Gomer is an act of love. At this point, he's probably not feeling it for this woman. And he's not feeling it for. But God says, I'm so glad for the word of God putting it like this. You go love her. Not go get her and come back and try to stir up your feelings again for her. No. This is why marriages fail. People just allow their sympathy, their, the, the love that stirs, you know, this romantic kind of love, the eros love. Great stuff, that romantic and eros love. Great stuff. Oh, man, good. Won't make a marriage last. It's not the foundation of a marriage. It's not what's going to make a marriage go for 25, 50 years. It's this kind of love. It's agape love. Agape love, like faith, is an action. Amazing verse, isn't this? Go love that woman. He doesn't, there's no feeling, I'm convinced there's no feelings left in him. But he's doing it because he is obeying God. And he's loving her by, by rescuing her from the mess she is again creating for herself. Just like the love of, beginning of the verse, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looks to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Oh man, 
we're going to do three chapters tonight, but I, I do have just a couple other things to say. Um, one of them is, again, I, I mentioned this last week, you know, sometimes what the Lord asks us to do is excruciatingly hard. Sometimes the ministry that the Lord has us to do, sometimes it is a relationship. Sometimes it is, you know, you know I, I've counseled multiple married couples. Sometimes it is staying in a relationship even though there has been adultery. God's will for our life is that we glorify him, not that we are happy all the time. He does want us to be happy, by the way, but never at the expense of his word and never at the expense of his glory. Sometimes with the Lord, some of you in this room, the Lord is asking you to do something that's excruciatingly hard. Can you imagine someone being told to do what Hosea was told to do? This raisin cake thing, really interesting Hebrew phrase. In the King James, it says, not raisin cake, but they love the flagons of wine. Anyone know what a flagon is? If you do, can you tell me? Um, a flagon of wine. So another translation is um, jugs of grapes. And so what this really was, was the, 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 some kind of fermented thing, uh, fermented grapes, it was a wine type of thing, which was a part of the ritual at the pagan temples. And at the pagan temples, really all they were was the worship of the baser nature of man. And they would, they would whatever, get drunk, engage in, have orgies and this type of thing. Really interesting, the uh, Greek philosopher Diogenes uh, there's the record of him being really angry because at the feast of the God of health, everyone's getting drunk and having orgies. And he's like, wait, this is really unhealthy. <laughs> this worship of this God of health, what is going on here? Uh, but this is what pagan worship is like. A porn site to me is no different than an ancient pagan temple. And people go into them. Paul says, Apostle Paul says, there's a demon behind every idol. It's, it's demonic, and they're engaging in worship. Now, there's grace for that. There's, there's, there's grace for that. Praise the Lord. Just as there was grace for Gomer. But we have the same, you know, when, when we worship mammon, it's the same thing. We're committing harlotry, you know, with against the Lord. Verse 2, so I bought for her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. So he actually bought her back. Now some people said she was sort of owned. Uh, I've always thought this. Um, She was owned as a sex slave and that is a common thing. Uh, In Haiti, there's tens of thousands of sex slaves um, please pray for me, by the way, and my daughter. We're, we're going to Haiti 
this week actually. But um, uh, more likely though, probably what this is, is he's actually paying for her just to get off the street. When we were in Brazil last summer on the missions trip, Alex, Pastor Alex, paid a prostitute to go home. So this would be a, uh, we, we were out ministering to uh, the po- prostitutes. Actually, really, what, mostly it was just the women. The guys stayed in the car and prayed. But um, uh, this is what Alex did. So it was, it was sort of a similar concept here. He's sort of buying her off, saying, listen, you have to come home. And then as I, <clears throat> he said to her when he was doing it, you shall stay with me many days. So repentance is, repentance is not a temporary thing. Look, you got to completely do the U-turn. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. And so here is the misunderstanding so many are having today. The church is intolerance towards people who have certain sexual mores, certain sexual orientations or whatever. It doesn't accept them. Not true. The church accepts every single person of every single orientation. The difference is God loves us too much to let us stay the way we are. And so that's exactly, that's exactly, this verse is an illustration of that very thing. Um, He's saying, you're not going to play the harlot. You need to change. God loves us too much to just sit, let us uh, eat away, let our sin eat away at us, so too will I be towards you. What an incredible, incredible statement that is. You're going to change, and you're not going to play uh, the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so too will I be towards you, meaning I'm actually going to be faithful towards you. Is that crazy or what? That's incredible. I mean, if anyone had a license to go out and cheat on his wife, it was Hosea. And here he is. Look, even, you de- even though you've done all this to you, I don't have any right to go out and, 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 and be unfaithful to you. Why? Because he understood that being unfaithful to his wife was the equivalent of being unfaithful to God. But I do find this amazing would not be the first thing on my lips if I'm going out and getting my, uh, you know, my wife and, you know, who's whatever, come from this lifestyle and bringing her back. But this is what he says. I am going to be faithful to you. This is our standard. When we were in this morning, you know, Jesus giving the cup, Luke 22, to Judas at the Last Supper. He knows at that time Judas is an enemy. It's that, that's the standard for us. We got to give the cup of friendship even to our enemy. We can only do that in Christ. We can only do that by surrendering, surrendering to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. And so in verse 4 there, this is going to he, he's basically saying, you know, Israel has played the harlot and as a result of her harlotry, she is going to suffer judgment and this is looking to the time where she would be 
wiped out, Israel will be wiped out by the Assyrians uh, right here. And I can't remember what year this was, about 750 B.C. here, the Assyrians came in and the northern kingdom was no more. This is the prophecy of that. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and and David their king. That's interesting. David their king. Who is that? It's a reference to who? Jesus. That's why they call Jesus the son of David. David's long dead by now. And, and, and they would come back, and it's a reference to, to him coming back. It's a reference to him coming back and establishing his kingdom. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So this is the heart of what their problem is. There is no truth or mercy, but the heart of their problem is this verse, or knowledge of God in the land. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed by what? By lusting after prostitutes, by getting drunk, by, um, you know, uh, beating up each other and violence and murder each other. No, that's not what is destroying. That's not the cause of what is destroying them. They're destroyed by what? Lack of knowledge. It's a famous verse here in the Bible. You hear this quoted. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You know, I mentioned last week Jehoshaphat. And, yeah, he's just a guy that um, I so appreciate in the Old Testament, not just because he has the coolest name in the Bible. That's not the only reason. It is the coolest name in the Bible. Jehoshaphat. But also because it says his, uh, Second Chronicles uh, 17, verse 7, Verse 6, it says he, his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. In the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders, Ben-Hail, ben Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, he sent the Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Athahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, Tobadonijah, the Levites, and with them, Elishimah, and Jehoram, the priest. It's so great that he's naming these people. This happened at a, at a time of history. So it says, verse 9, they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Actually, later on, I think he goes up even into the northern kingdom. By, that, by this time, Jehoshaphat, he's a king in the south, and he invades the north, I, I believe, a little later on with the, with the word of God. But uh, uh, in, in Hosea, Israel was wasting away. It says, verse 2, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break 
all restraint. So without, without the knowledge of God, there is no restraint. There is no restraint. When a society, a community, a nation does not have the knowledge of God. Therefore, the land will mourn. Everyone who dwells there will waste away, verse 3, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Now, according to the law, people are supposed to listen to the priest. Here, uh, the priest has just become sort of a common thing, a common man. By that, I mean... Uh, not that they're different than anybody else, but they're like whatever. Uh, they're like dirt. They're like something that they don't value anymore, the, instru- the instruction of the Levites. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you from being priest, singular, for me. Now, it's unclear there where he, if he's talking about a specific priest. I suspect he may be talking about the whole nation. They were a nation of priests. The church is a priest. That's why Martin Luther talked about priesthood of all believers. They're a priest in the sense they represent God to the world. That's what, a, that's what a priest does. He represents the people to God, but also God to the world. But could be also talking about a specific priest or maybe the priestly class. It says, I will reject you as priest before me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. That's a scary thought. That's the, the judgment that was coming upon, it, upon them. Verse 7, the more they increased... That's speaking of blessing. The more they sin against me. So, you know, this is something that I wrestle with. Even, even many years walking with the Lord. Why does God, why would God, why does God bless when he knows that people will start worshiping the blessing? Why does he do that? I don't know the answer to that fully. I, I, I do know it has something to do with his character. It's in, in his na- nature to bless, but this is what happens to man. This is what happens to you. This is what happens to me. We start worshiping the blessing rather than the bless or the one who blesses. The more they increase, the more they sin. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. Now, now here they, it appears that he is talking about the priests. They eat up the sin of my people. In other words, they're just, the people are sinning and they're just sort of eating up the whole thing, you know, the, the priests here. They set their heart on their iniquity and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. They shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Now at this time so here in verse 10 it said they shall eat but not have enough but at this time no one, this was not the case. There was enormous prosperity during the reign of Jeroboam the second. It would big time be under these people. There would just be 
a rapid decline. And remember last week I went through what a mess. There's a number of these guys were assassinated. A number of them just reigned for a couple of years. One guy was just a month. There was just disarray. All of it which was predict- predicted by Hosea. Uh, but they are sitting here in their prosperity and they're listening to this guy Hosea saying, you know, you shall eat, but it's not going to be enough. That's the place in your life where you're going to get. And they're like, uh, no way. Look at all the abundance we have. Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine, enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them, their staff, so uh, an idol some kind of pagan thing, a staff of a priest or whatever, they would ask questions to a wooden staff. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths. And so a common pagan place of worship is is out in meadows. I don't know if any of you saw that movie 15 years ago about Patrick. Actually, it was a good movie. I can actually recommend this movie. Patrick, St. Patrick in Ireland, and, and, and there's a beginning scene. He, he, Patrick was a complete pagan, and they have these scenes with him drinking blood sacrifice offerings in pagan England, and they're in this meadow and under these trees, and this is what pagans used to do. And that's, this is a reference to them. They're bur- doing it under the oaks, the poplars, and the terebinths because their shade is good. Be- therefore, your daughters c- um, commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry nor your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go apart with harlots. So everyone um, is doing it and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. So prostitution was a... Uh, it was ritualized in the temple. It was ritualized in the temple. I was reading some paper by some, uh, I don't know who they were, a seminary student at some, I would call a non-Christian seminary, and they didn't have anything better to write about, and they're writing about how ritualized prostitution never really happened. And that's the problem with many of these seminaries. The professors and the students have never read the Bible. There are these references, and I really mean that when I say that, by the way, and I speak with one who is for a while at one of these places. They didn't know the Bible. Very clear reference here. This is a history book, and in addition to the Word of God, it's a history book of people going in to temples, and there was ritualized prostitution uh, going on. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not uh, come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon. 
nor swear an oath saying as the Lord lives. So all of a sudden here you see a reference to Judah. Um, Hosea's ministry was to the northern ten tribes. And God is saying here, Judah, don't even go up to Israel. You know, every, every once in a while it's good for, for every one of us, including myself, but every one of you here this evening, just ask yourself, who are you hanging out with? Who are you drawing strength from? Now, Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he hang out, hung out with sinners, but as, as I've mentioned before, he, wa- he was a thermostat. In other words, he set the temperature. And you've got to ask yourself, yes, you're supposed to be with unbelievers. Yes, Christians should not be so cloistered that we're having no influence on the world. I hope every single person in this room, a pharisaical believer, would say, look at that friend of sinners because of the people that you're hanging out with. That having been said, when you're in their company, are you a thermometer? In other words, is the spiritual temperature being set by someone other than you, or are you a thermostat? Look, there's people I can't hang out with. And I have no business hanging out with. Because I'll become a thermometer. I'll just, my, the spirit, the, 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 I will be too affected uh, by them. And here he's saying, don't you dare, Jew, to go up to Israel because of stuff going on here. He says, don't go to Gilgal. That, that's one of the places they um, had offerings. And don't you go up to beth Now, this is really interesting, actually, for you, you, you Hebrew geeks, and I hope you all become Hebrew geeks someday. Hebrew, great language. Um, although I know very little bit, very little of it. Um, but but the, you do a word study in this, and it, it's really interesting. Beth-Avon, actually, this is a reference to Beth-El, house of God. Beth, house, El, God. Beth-El was, was a wonderful place that Jeroboam, the, the first king of the north, turned into a place of idolatry. He put a golden calf up there and said, don't go to Israel for the feast, just go here. And God turns the name from Bethel, house of, house of God, to house of Avon, which meant deceiver. Don't go up to the house of deceit. Got to change the name from house of God to house of deceit. Because, man, when you get there, you're going to be corrupted. Verse 16, for Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in the open country. In other words, look, uh, 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 calves are okay or bulls are okay in the open country because, man, they have a, a, with a swift kick, they can injure a wolf. But lambs, that's why we're called sheep. That's why we're called lambs in the Bible because we are, we're vulnerable out in the open field. Pastor Scott, can you make it a little warmer in here? (laughs) Thank you. I'm seeing people starting to bundle up. It's always an interesting sight when I'm up here. Just seeing people going, bundling up and cuddling up. It's nice to cuddle up, though. It's a good time of year to do that. But uh, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Scott. Uh, But anyway, it says here that He's just going to let them be like a lamb in the open country, which means what? It means they're going to be vulnerable to wolves. 
because sheep can't protect themselves against wolves. You don't, you don't see a, a sheep like a donkey giving a swift kick, a swift kick like a like an you know an uppercut into a wolf's jaw. Won't see that. You're just going to see you're just going to see wolves devour them. That's what you're going to see. Ephraim is joined to idols. Ephraim was the largest tribe in the north, and so sometimes Ephraim and Israel are synonymous. Let them alone. Their drink is rebellion. They, they commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Chapter 5, hear this, O priest. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. So the revolters, uh, this is a reference here to the priests. The priests are leading the way here. The priests are refusing to teach the word of God. God has rebuked the priests, but they're leading the way. They're involved in the slaughter. What a damning testimony that you slaughtered the people. You didn't teach the word of God to them. You actually slaughtered them. Verse 3, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds towards turning to their God. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. They do not know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. That's a very interesting, very interesting verse. What on earth does it mean? The pride of Israel testifies to his face. What it means, it's kind of like a witness in court is testifying in court. Their pride is like testifying against them is what it means, against their own face, to their face. It's almost like they're looking in the mirror and the pride that they see in the mirror is testifying against them. It's a wonderful imagery here. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah stumbles with them. And so, again, a reference to Judah in the south here. Um, the, they're having issues too in the south. They did have good kings down there. Um, and the, the, the kings in the north, there was not one single good one in their whole history. But in the south, there were good kings. There were about nine of them. But they were still rebelling against the Lord. Verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. So they're showing up at church. They were making a loud noise. Just as we talked recently of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, they were having this huge, gigantic celebration with musics and nobles and princes, but they were carrying the Ark of Covenant on an ox cart, so the Lord wasn't enjoying it. It's a problem. That's why Uzzah was struck dead when he reached out and touched the ark. So God's not enjoying it. They're showing up with their offerings, verse 6, their flocks and herds, 
and he's not enjoying it. Why? Verse 7, they have dealt treacherously with the Lord. They have begotten pagan children. So it appears that they're intermarrying here with unbelievers. Now a new moon shall devour them in their heritage. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. And indeed they would. The Assyrians, the army, would come in and just ravage the land. Verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. So from time to time, there is a prophecy against the southern kingdom. Here's one. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. So if you remember what happens, the northern kingdom were wiped out by the Assyrians, and so was 95% of the southern kingdom until until they were struck by the angel of God. Jerusalem was preserved. So God's going to pour his wrath on the south as well. But Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept, by human laws. Alexander Pope, a famous writer, once wrote wrote this. He said, um, the proper study of mankind is man. Charles Spurgeon wrote that. Ooh, that's a painful thought. Having something where you write your way off like that and having Charles Spurgeon read it. Oh, no, are you in for an, a, a retort? He responded to Pope's statement. He says this, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper course of study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can, can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Their problem was that they didn't know God. That was their problem. When Ephraim, Ephraim, verse 13, saw his sickness, Judah saw his wound, and Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you. So here they are, before Assyria wiped them out, they actually went to Assyria to try to do some kind of uh, treaty with them to help things out. He says, but he's not going to cure you. He's not going to heal your womb, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I even I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. In the King James, I prefer the translation there. It says, in their affliction. That word affliction means, it means narrow. It means a a narrow place. It says, but in the King James, it says, in their affliction, they will seek me early. And I love that seeking God early. 
seeking him early. There's just that idea that he's real. They're really, when they come back to him, it's going to be coming hard after him with their whole heart. Okay. That was three chapters. And so we'll close there this evening. We do end our evening services.